Kekschen, so verschenkt man doch nicht zum Geburtstag. Na du nicht, aber ich This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. Streaming live Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday every week at 10 a.m. Chicago time. The world broad- broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and on CKUW-FM in Win- Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station at the University of Winnipeg. We also air twice every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side at lumpenradio.com and thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beweretheradio.com. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or whatever podcasting outlet, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and there are fortunes being made from illegal poaching in national forests of not only endangered animals, but threatened plant life as well, including the Pacific Northwest's ancient redwoods, iconic redwoods. No redwoods are not endangered, but only 5% of the original redwood forest still exists today. So how bad is poaching? As our guest today writes, their ability to store large amounts of carbon, the redwoods alone hold more carbon per acre than any other forest in the world. And British Columbia's Kamenaw-Walbrum Provincial Park contains twice the biomass of lush southern hemispheric tropical forests that are widely considered the Earth's lungs, making old-growth trees a key species in our fight against climate change. Think about that just for a moment. One park in Canada contains twice as much biomass as the forest that so much media coverage focuses on, with relatively little attention given to what is happening here in the northern hemisphere. It's usually we get all the focus, but on this one issue, we don't. If their impact on fighting climate change is not enough to warrant our attention, then maybe the impact of poaching in public forests on the communities that surround them is enough to raise concerns, not only for the trees, but the people living amongst the, those trees. In a few minutes, we will consider an issue we have never discussed before here on This Is Hell, something I'm guessing you may have never considered before, and that is the effect of poaching flora, plants, including redwood trees, on climate change and what that means for our humanity's relationship with nature when we speak with writer, researcher, and oral historian Lindsay Bergan 
author of Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Lindsay is a writer, oral historian, and 2018 National Geographic Explorer based in British Columbia, Canada. She writes about the environment and its entanglement with history, culture, and identity. Follow Lindsay on Twitter at Albergon. That's B-O-U-R-G-O-N. And find out more about Lindsay at her website, lindsayborgon.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Voper. Sebastian, how have you been? How was your weekend? Any plans for the week? All that kind of stuff. I got a checklist here. I have oh, to yeah. do it for an insurance company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so, the only way you get health insurance on the mm-hmm, show. Okay. Wait, you get health insurance? Shh. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, weekend was good. I uh, we had a weekend. We had a weekend. We had a, uh, my birthday party um, with um, six instead of eight people, which is just the crowd size that I am really comfortable with. Um, due to the pandemic. Due to the pandemic. I mean, due bu- to the pandemic, but also just in, in general. But it's not. it wasn't like, your birthday this weekend, just like it wasn't my birthday this weekend, correct? I mean, yeah, my birthday is on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, then we're just... After that, we started to basically straight up go into the uh, last-ditch wedding preparations, which are now also overshadowed by an impending death in my wife's family, which is great. Um, so, yeah, my wife is uh, driving up to the Michigan's Upper Peninsula today to um, basically likely give her wow. last respects to, uh, well, a family member who is um, unexpectedly dying of cancer, so that's that. Well, my condolences to Chloe and to you as well. Yeah, you. So right before you're about to have your wedding ceremony, somebody decide, somebody ends up dying. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Either either that or while we're on our honeymoon, maybe, who knows? It's yeah, it's not great. No, that is not, <laughs> great, not great at all. I was going to say are you you know, believe that your wedding is finally going to be, you know, all the preparations and all that stuff is going to be finally over with, you know, and you're going to be finally be able to relax by going on your honeymoon. But I guess all that's kind of up in the air right now. I mean, I don't think that we're going to cancel anything, but it's still just overshadowed and colored by uh by that now so yeah yeah that's um but that's just the way life is yeah um brutal yeah (laughs) brutal and or nasty brutish and short um who knows uh, lives a female dog and then you die um Wait, can we can yeah, we say yeah, female? Just like, it's, it's like, we'll move on from that. Um, yeah, and then uh, 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 the rest of the week. Um, well, we're preparing for the wedding and everything, and um, yeah, and I. Well, my birthday is on Wednesday, but that's uh, it already has been celebrated, so it's just gonna pass by. Like, uh, what'd you do for you? You had people over, but what'd you guys do? Did you have food? What'd you do? Oh, we just had a little bit of drink and food, and just hang around and you just party, talked. Uh, yes, basically. Uh, I mean, it, we 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 intended we had intended to play board games, but that just didn't happen <laughs> because we just talked too much. Yeah, that's generally what happens with me whenever uh, uh, my girlie and I decide that we're gonna. Uh, be playing some board games at night or playing some game, dominoes or whatever we're going to be playing, all of a sudden we just start talking and then the game has been somehow interrupted and the conversation went on for two hours and the game of dominoes goes on for five suddenly. Today is my birthday as the German music before the show 
would tell you if you and, spoke German. And as the German music also indicates, today is German Reunification Day. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> All just because of me. Thank yes, you, Germany. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> but as today is a work day for myself and the woman who puts up with me more than anyone else, uh, we instead celebrated all weekend long, as Sebastian did. Friday night, we ordered from our favorite Nepalese restaurant, had an amazing shrimp curry pastries called Tibetan Delights, which sounds incredible just on its own. Kwadi, which is a blend of nine different kinds of beans that's delicious. The best chicken tandoori I have ever had. I'd never ordered it from this place because you can get chicken tandoori anywhere, but man, is it incredible when it's a Nepalese version. And all sorts of stuff we'll be eating for the next several days. Whenever we order out, we always get way more food than we need, so it makes it, it kind of makes sense because it feeds us for three or four days instead of just one because it's kind of expensive to order food out. Saturday, our plan was to go uh, out to breakfast for the first time since before the pandemic. First time since before the pandemic. Instead, we stopped by here to drop something off, but decided to take the opportunity to clean up the office and the studio, which meant the breakfast place had closed by the time we were finished cleaning. Our plan was to eat and go for a hike in the woods, so with the breakfast place we were supposed to go to already closed, we randomly just stopped at a Mexican restaurant that claimed to be authentic, and it was very authentic. It was absolutely delicious. We then stumbled into an antique shop where there was nothing we could afford and we were followed around by all of the workers constantly and uh, ended up at Labau Woods working or uh, walking for almost two hours and seeing at least a half dozen deer including two bucks which meant all day Sunday was nothing but chores around the house for me and an ice pack around my back because ever since my surgery every lengthy walk is followed by intense back pain. In other words Aside from the intense back pain, a pretty good birthday weekend. As for this week, we will be talking today about redwood poaching, and then we'll have the return of a guest who proposes we abolish the family and learn why the uh, kind of surveillance that of January 6th suspects that we're being, we've been seeing can easily be turned against those who oppose those so-called insurgents. But more on all that later. Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question, question from hell is, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? What should our <laughs> beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? I think uh, old enough to drink gasoline. I think that's the age that I've passed now. Ah, <laughs> The you, person without our Your internal combustion engine has <laughs> exactly. matured. Exactly. Has matured. Uh, so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell as always when's your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the this is hell t-shirt tote bag face covering face mask coffee mug trucker's cap winter beanie or toque if you prefer as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways that you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support, and uh, what a great birthday present for me, having you sign up as a Patreon subscriber. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. It's actually a twofer, because if you give me the gift of a Patreon, uh, being a Patreon subscriber, it's also a gift to Sebastian. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. 
Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Pim's Cup. Pim's Cup, uh, well, Coastal Illustrated, which covers local news for Georgia's Golden Isles, including St. Simon's Island, Sea Island, and Jekyll Island, is there also Hyde Island, <laughs> ran a story last month headlined, The Elusive Hangover Cure. Writer Jim Henderson offered three hair of the dog cocktails, Pim's Cup, a Michelada, and... A Bloody Maria, which is just a Bloody Mary with a tequila subbing for vodka. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Michelada and Bloody Mary, uh, Bloody Mary or Bloody Maria? Well, anyway, uh, have both been mentioned during passing over cures. Not that we keep track of that sort of thing. But we're pretty sure we've never suggested a Pim's Cup. Henderson writes, normally this British libation is a drink made for summer sipping at tennis and cricket <laughs> matches. But as hangover remedy, it has a lot going for it. It traditionally includes ginger beer, which works wonders on any stomach melody, and Pim's itself is low in alcohol. The cup will usually include various unobjectionable fruits and veggies, too, giving uh, one a bit of sustenance along with the soothing ginger. It doesn't hurt that Pim's originally formulated in 1840 as an aperitif by uh, a London pub owner is loaded with herbs and spices and is quite tasty. To make a Pim's cup, Henderson writes, add two ounces Pim's number one and a half ounce lemon juice into a highball glass over ice. Then top with ginger beer and stir briefly to continue uh, to combine. Garnish with a cucumber slice, mint sprig, skewerts, skewerts, strawberry, and optional lemon and orange wheels. Coastal Illustrated's Henderson adds, As you can tell, this is the British equivalent of the Bloody Mary. The more garnishes, the better. The cucumber is the required element. You can let your imagination and ingredients on hand guide you the rest of the way. That makes this week's hangover cure... A Pim's Cup. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Listener Greg G. sent an email to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, and it reads, I wanted to let you know that we just had Maximilian Alvarez talk during our organization's The Wikimedia Foundation virtual all-hands event about the history of the labor movement and how tech and Wikipedia play an important role. It was great, and I hope it spurs greater labor awareness within the organization, a great nonprofit, to be fair. But when I saw he was going to speak, I double-checked to see if he had been a guest already on the show on This Is Hell, and he had back in 2018. I also noticed that he has a new book out, maybe a decent repeat interviewee. I wish I could have been at the anniversary party last month, but I'm so happy to hear all the stories from it. Thanks for being my primary parasocial podcast relationship. First, Max was on the show back in 2018 to discuss his article of The Baffler, The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Second, the name of Max's new book is The Work of Living People, Working People Talk About Their Lives and the Year the World Broke. For those of you who are unaware of Max's work, he is the editor at The Real News Network and host of the podcast Working People, and he currently has a regular column at The Baffler called 
the poverty of theory. Third, thanks for the suggestion, Greg. We are putting Max on the list. Actually, he was already on the list, but thank you anyway. Also, thank you for uh, Greg attending uh, for uh, our annual anniversary in the past, anniversary party in the past. And we hope to see you next year or even in December when we are having our This Is Hell holiday office party, which we will be sharing details on the show in the very near future. We are also uh, we also got an email from uh, Greg, a follow-up email that where he writes, Effing hell, did I miss Alex Jerry's voice on the air? That is all Greg. I agree. It was fun being back on air with former producer Alex Jerry sitting in and running the board while new producer Lindsey Gorey was suffering from COVID-19. And Greg, you and I are not alone as I heard the same thing from some people who dropped by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesdays at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, uh, which happened from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. every Wednesday, no matter the weather. Lots of people were saying that they had missed Alex being on the show. So thanks, Alex. We truly appreciate you spelling. Lindsay, coming up, how poaching destroys forests and the lives of the people who live within and around them. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as giving us his latest installment of the that the past into the present. When Sebastian, a historian himself, looks back in time to find the context we need to have a better understanding of what is happening right now, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth later on this week, and we will tell you who else will be joining us on the show this week. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And to the people who live around and within forests, the grief witnessed by the poaching of ancient redwood trees must be truly painful. Yet, some of those nearby residents may also be the ones doing the harm to the forests themselves they depend upon for their own well-being. Here to help us wrap our minds around the poaching of timber from ancient forests and its impact on those surrounding communities, as well as on climate change, writer, researcher, and oral historian Lindsay Bergon is author of Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Again, Lindsay is a writer, oral historian, and 2018 National Geographic Explorer based in British Columbia. And let me start right there, Lindsay, real quick, because during our Patreon podcast this week, Sebastian asked, what is a National Geographic Explorer? So for people who do not know, can you please explain what that is? Sure. It's a good question. It means uh, something different for everyone who gets the who gets the title, um, but essentially it just means that the National Geographic Society has supported my work. Um, and, you know, in that sense, they have provided me with funding. Um, some of that, some of the work that I did with, with them um, actually contributed to this book, which was really much appreciated. But uh, I mean, National Geographic Explorers, they do everything like they, deep dive under the sea and you know they go into volcanoes and 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 kind of do scientific research and um they are world-class photographers and so there are times when i think i don't i don't quite know what i'm doing with this (laughs) group of people but anyway so it's kind of um, like a macarthur foundation grant in a way but except it's for you to study whatever you are working on within uh the environment correct in a way, um, I mean, you apply for it. It's a it's a grant funding stream. Um, there are different focus points. Um, so, you know, for instance, this year, I think they're doing quite a bit of work into freshwater 
uh, management stories, uh, which actually might be of interest to to a Chicago audience. But um, yeah, so they have different uh, they have different focus points uh, that they're interested in. Uh, and it really, I mean, there are archaeologists who are National Geographic explorers. There are paleontologists. So it really, uh, it spans all eras and all, all sorts of subjects. Oh, that's fascinating. So uh, first, yeah. I, I also want to thank you for sending an autographed copy of your book to be raffled off at our anniversary oh. party. I really appreciate it. That was really great. And the person who won it was so happy to get your book because they were already interested in it because as we had teased it on the show already. So thanks again for that. Uh, at the beginning, yeah, thanks for asking me. Of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, so <laughs> you describe the area where redwood poaching takes place and how it happens, writing, there is no official trail here, no campgrounds nearby, any stars that might peek through the thick Pacific fog are hidden by a thick treetop canopy. They stop at the, these uh, poachers stop at the foot of a large ancient redwood stump. One fires up the chainsaw and the high-pitched buzz of the engine echoes loud across the clearing. No one driving along the redwood highway would be able to hear the strained noises of metal teeth biting into the deep ochre wood of the tree's trunk. His work is meticulous and neat. He carves squares with straight edges. Slowly, the trunk is cleaved into fragments, falling to the forest floor like a glacier calves bergs into water. This logger's companion stands guard, and throughout the night, the pair barely talk. Eventually, they amass a pile of heavy rectangular blocks of redwood, some of which they push down toward the truck, slowly flipping the sections as they flop down the hill. They load the wood into the truck bed and drive away. Back in the woods, the centuries-old redwood trunk remains with a third of its body poached, a gaping wound. How much do you think this poaching is a function of where redwoods are located, is a function of this being a kind of a crime of opportunity. Is protecting against redwood poaching difficult, if not impossible, because of their location in areas where is there is low vil- visibility, poor acoustics, leading to easy cover for the poachers? Is it just because of the convenience and opportunity? It's a good question. I think, um, you know, tree poaching is is really interesting in this way because what makes the tree valuable is its protected status and that's you know it's protected also because it's being poached so it's kind of I don't know if that's a catch-22 but it's it's quite circular you know like so we're protecting it because it's valuable it's valuable because it's protected Uh, and so I think that the the kind of geographic reality of where redwoods and and other old growth grow means that it is easy to poach in a sense, particular for local communities and people that are very, very familiar with the areas themselves, perhaps more familiar than um, even a ranger who is might have been transferred into that park or transferred into that region might know. Um, It is, I think, a crime of opportunity. It's it's also a crime of skill in a sense. It, you know, it is not an easy, it is not an easy crime to to undertake because you need logging skills um, and you need to know where to take it. So so how is this poaching, though, if it's the carving of a stump, the remains of a yeah. redwood. After all, is a stump, 
isn't the tree dead? What good can that stump mm. do for the ecosystem if it's left alone? Actually, the tree or the the stump is not dead. Um, so in that instance, the the redwood had been logged, um, you know, many decades before, probably at least fifty years before the poaching took place. Uh, their redwoods have these uh, kind of amazing parts of their biology called burls, and they often grow underground or they grow right above ground near the base of the trunk. And they are these big bulbous lumps or bumps that come off of the side of the trunk. And inside of them is uh, like the, the kind of genetic ability to to sprout new trees. So burls are are sort of safeguard against logging, for instance. And so even when a even when a tree is is logged, the the underground root system can still provide the energy and and then the kind of ability to sp spring up new saplings. Um, and you'll you'll see this in all sorts of forests. They actually call them fairy rings. Um, and so in BC, where there's a lot of cedar poaching and a lot of cedar logging, you can go into areas where a tree may have been logged 50 years ago, and you'll see in a circle new cedar seedlings popping up in a circle where the where the stump was or where the stump is. And so even in this instance, when you're hearing about the poaching of from the from the stump that you just read about, that there was the ability for that stump to lead to new old growth, to lead to new trees uh, growing. And there actually were seedlings coming off of that off of that redwood. Uh, redwoods, though, they, they grow at a very rapid rate. According to the website of the University of California at Davis Arboretum, quote, coast redwoods can grow three to 10 feet per year. Redwoods are among the fastest growing trees on earth. A redwood achieves most of its vertical growth within the first hundred years of its life. Mm. If redwoods grow so quickly, can't poached trees be replaced by new growth quickly, which will soon replace those trees? So new growth, um, yes, I mean, of course, they can um, they can be replaced. Uh, it takes for for an old growth redwood to to become old growth, it takes hundreds and hundreds of years. And so new new growth is amazing because in 500 years from now, you'll have an old growth. But uh, in the immediate taking of the tree, we're we're removing kind of something that's very important to the ecosystem now. Um, and so it's not so much the fact that it's that the forest is one tree down and a new one will come in. It's it's the kind of really important history and and stabilizing force that that old tree brought to the forest that that damages it when it's taken. You write of you witnessing your first poached tree and how one day in the spring of 2011, a hiker in British Columbia's Kamenad Walbrun provincial park noticed the smell of fresh sawdust in the air and he walked the spotted uh, felling wedges and as he walked mm -hmm. the spotted felling wedges uh, tools used to guide a tree's fall in a particular uh, direction thrust into the body of an 800 year old red cedar with the right wind the tree rising about 160 feet tall could easily tip over the wedges had shifted the tree from towering sentinel in lush rainforest to teetering public danger British Columbia Parks Rangers were forced to down the cedar themselves 
themselves. They left the tree on the forest floor to decompose, recycling back into the earth over the next hundred years. It wouldn't last anywhere near that long. Just 12 months later, most of the trunk was gone. Ironically, by honoring their mandate of safety and conservation, British Columbia Parks had made it easier for the tree to be stolen. Is that the typical poaching strategy? Make the tree a danger, having rangers take it down and then return to get the felled tree? If so, why not just wait for the poachers to return or you'd have to sit there for 12 mm. months waiting for them? That, so that was that was a little bit of a unique situation um, in terms of, and, and I should clarify that I actually haven't, uh, I have not interviewed the poachers on that case because there's been no no kind of sense of who they might be. And so we don't actually know if um, the poachers purposefully made it a public danger, knowing that the parks would take it down. It's very, very common that poaching will take place in a two or three part operation. So it very well could have been that a poacher came in one night, you know, started started doing the 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 kind of operations to fell this tree, put the wedge in, had to leave and was going to come back later and in between that time the hiker found the hiker found the the tree and 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 all of that so um that is more common than um the the pope the the park actually roundabout assisting in the felling of the tree <laughs> um it's more common that um it would be a two-part operation that someone might stumble upon halfway or or at some point in the poaching so a crime occurs, but nobody is charged, and the criminal's mm -hmm. profit as the wood is sold to be made into, as you point, either shingles, a clock, or a table. Can mm -hmm. redwood poaching stop as long as there is a demand for redwood products? Is the only way to protect against redwood poaching to make redwood products illegal? I think it's a good question. There, You know, I, I waffle sometimes on the the solution aspect to this story um i would say that in 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 scholarship and and the consensus with a lot of folks that work in poaching is that unfortunately consumerism is very unlikely to be quelled in this regard um and so really the the approach should then be to um really try to highly manage what wood enters into the system and in that regard, you know, there's a lot of talk around making the act of poaching not worth it, um, really trying to dissuade poachers as opposed to stopping people from buying uh, redwood. That said, you know, I, I had a really interesting conversation with a with a resource officer up here in Canada, and we were talking about, you know, how do you how do you stop this at a much higher level than than simply kind of arresting someone, charging them, putting them in jail or finding them, and then they might come out and start doing it again. And I do think that there is very likely at some point to be a sort of shift in in change in how we think about certain woods. I think it's widely widely considered unethical to own mahogany now, for instance. And that's because we know that mahogany is poached, that there's not much left. Um, and there's a chance that redwood and cedar might eventually end up like that. And, you know, the NRO, that that's what we would call this, this park ranger up here. That's his title. He, um, he said, you know, I think we might eventually start seeing this the way that you might see ivory keys in a piano. Um, or, or, you know, tusks being used as artwork back in the day, um, and that 
eventually it might become morally wrong to own some of this wood. So how much does a lack of enforcement lead to this problem in every national forest? Is it simply there are not enough rangers or surveillance or resources for rangers or surveillance? Or is the problem that the areas are so vast it would be impossible to police them effectively against poaching? It's all of the above. You know, I think um, rangers would certainly say that they are understaffed in this regard. Pardon me. Um, And... uh, that you know, in in the province where I live, British Columbia, um, the Park Service has really found itself caught up in a lot of funding cuts through the years. The the Carmana Walbrin, the the park that you were asking me about with the cedar in it, I mean that park had has, as far as I know, rangers visiting only quarterly um, and doing a walkthrough. So they don't even have people that are regularly there to like monitor what's going on in the park and if you're if you're a poacher you live locally you're very likely to eventually cop on to when those (laughs) when those rangers are coming what their schedules look like when they might not be around um so it that is um understaffing and and underfunding is is quite a problem like you're saying it is an absolutely vast uh, environment and natural environment that they are also in charge of protecting. I thought that this would play into it a bit more before I started reporting, but actually most tree poaching takes place really close to the main thoroughfares and the main roads. So it's not happening, you know, three hours deep into a hike in the woods. Um, and that's because wood is really hard to transport. It's very heavy. Uh, you'd need, if you couldn't access your vehicle right away, you'd need some sort of ATV or, you know, wheelbarrow or something that you're going to be transporting the wood in and out of. And that just makes it riskier that someone's going to catch you. Um, so it's not so much that the poaching is happening very remotely. Um, it's it's often happening very close to roads and very close to towns. Wow. So you also write that in North America, the scale of timber poaching varies by region. In eastern Missouri, mm-hmm. for instance, timber theft has become a frequent problem in Mark Twain National Forest, where in 2021, a man was charged with cutting down 27 walnut and white oak trees inside the park over the course of six months, then selling them to local mills. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned prohibiting the per- purchase of redwood uh, products earlier, even the, the question of holding someone responsible for buying a redwood table or clock. Are mills held responsible for milling mm-hmm. poached redwoods, or is there no way for a mill to know if the redwood they're receiving is poached or not? This is a really tough question, and I have to say that when I started off reporting for this book, I thought, you know, I think I can, I think I can spend time with rangers. I had a sense that poachers would be open to speaking with me, but I knew that mills would be the hardest, the hardest part, and and that did bear out to be true, um, because they are the the kind of point of entering the system. And so a lot of them, a lot of mill owners and a lot of, you know, even artisan shop owners and, and, and people that are buying wood on from the poachers, they're very reluctant to speak about it. And there are ways that mills check for provenance of wood. So usually it's through paperwork that will show, you know, that you have a license, first of all, and that that license is for certain species of tree that grows 
you know, either on maybe your private land or, you know, that you've received a permit to, to log from the Forest Service or something like that. Um, in one case that I follow in the book, it was it was eventually proved that the paperwork that was provided to that mill was forged. And so it is not uncommon that people will provide some sort of paperwork and it's up to the mill to really I, to decide if they can trust that that paperwork is legit or not. And a lot of mill owners, you know, they're going to decide this based off of their relationship with the person that they're buying from and also the look of the wood. And, you know, particularly in North America, this is really important because we only have so much old growth left. And if old growth wood is just really beautiful, it's, it's unparalleled in terms of like quality and grain and 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 color and all of this and so if a mill owner can look at the wood and it basically looks too good to be true they could probably assume that it's been poached um that it's been taken from somewhere it shouldn't be and then it's kind of up to them what they're going to do about it if they're going to turn a blind eye if you know in some cases uh you know they might call they might call an investigator right away, like they might actually buy the wood and then put it to the side and say, I think that this was poached and here's the paperwork and and all of that if they're cooperative. Uh, but in other cases, I think they they trust that they can really move this wood really quickly to us to a buyer uh, or, or, you know, manufacture it themselves. And once it gets turned into a product, it's very difficult to identify. And so the, that that level is is a very important one when it comes to quelling the cons the con uh, the consumerism around this poached wood. So, do you think that the mills are the main driving force of this corruption, or do you think it's the people who are bringing the supplies to the mills? I I, I think it would be unfair to place it all on the mill. Um, I think that they work within a system where, you know, they're going to look at, they might look at some wood and say, this wood looks good. I know I can sell it really quickly because there's high demand. I suspect it might be poached. That's not up to me maybe to investigate. I'm not a police officer and I'm going to, I'm going to go for it and sell it from to take what's mine. <laughs> you know, um, I don't blame them entirely. I blame I think it's a constellation of issues that leads into this. Um, essentially, everyone is trying to get ahead and to and to earn money from trees, and they're going to do it on their level the way they can. Yeah, well, well, that leads me to uh, so is national uh, forest poaching, uh, is provincial forest poaching, is state forest poaching. Is that a sign of local desperation? You write in New England, mm -hmm. the primary victims are cherry trees in Kentucky. The bark is stripped off the slippery elm tree for use in herbal remedies and diet supplements. Bonsai have disappeared from a museum garden in Seattle. Palm trees from Los Angeles yards. A, a rare pine from an arboretum in Wisconsin. Ancient alligator junipers from Prescott National Forest in Hawaii, in or in Arizona. In Hawaii, koa mm -hmm. trees prized for their fine-grained redwood are stolen from the rainforest in Ohio, Nebraska, in Indiana, and Tennessee, I found the stumps of black walnut and white oak. None of these trees 
tribes were rooted in logging land, all had been afforded some measure of protection, meaning they matter to someone in some place. Does this happen mm-hmm. in largely poverty-stricken areas committed by those who are desperate for any financial gain? Is this a reflection of a decline within the lumber ind- the timber industry in general? Yes. So that is... Um, that that's really the narrative that I that I argue for in my book and and really what was borne out to me as I did research and I did interviews. You know, when I first started reporting on this on this book, um, I start okay, so I started out, I I thought I'm gonna talk to the park rangers, the resource officers, I'm gonna ask them, you know, how do they investigate this and and what's the motivating factor? And almost right away, you know, I heard those those rangers and 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 those folks saying, you know, we have we struggle with meth addiction in this part of the world, and there's just mass poverty that's also tied to that, and that's why this happens. You know, it is it's it's a crime not dissimilar to perhaps stealing copper from a construction site or or a robbery of kind of of houses in more urban areas. Um, this is just the thing that's of value in these in these rural areas. And so I, you know, I thought that was really interesting. And I live out here. So I, you know, I could see these towns. I could see these communities in my head. I could, I knew what, where they were talking about. And I knew that those stories were really complicated, that it wasn't just a case of you've got a real kind of rundown town that's full of people that that just commit crimes and they don't care you know i knew that there was a lot of trauma around those communities um and so to think of timber poaching as as coming from that was really really opened up my eyes and really opened up how i how i came to approach this book um and you know i see timber poaching as part of the trickle down effect of Log, the the end of logging, the deindustrialization of much of this part of the world, the 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 shift away from industrial work and into kind of other types of work economies, and what that can mean for what that can mean for communities that were built around that around that world, and and you know often the narrative in those communities from the businesses that were running these, you know, these mills and these logging operations was that this isn't, this isn't going anywhere. And you're a part of the founding of America, you know, and, and your work is really good and you're strong and independent. And when that ended, I mean, that just had a huge effect on this part of the world emotionally and economically. So are we forced to choose what's best for the planet, for the earth, for the forests, and what's best for the local communities is because I, I hate binaries like that. Is it I, yeah. is is it that simple? Is it you have to support the community or you have to support the planet? I don't think so. And you know, when I was when I started doing my research for this book, you know, I can't help but think about. I mean, this continues in regions across North America and around the world today. You know, I'm from I'm from this province up here called Alberta, which is an oil and gas economy. This is something that is front of mind for, you know, people in my family and extended circle every day. When we start talking about, you know, carbon transition, it echoes 
what happened and what continues to happen in coal mines in Appalachia, um, offshore drilling. Um, you know, this is this is, I think, one of the guiding questions of the environment and the economy of our times, and it's something that we've that we have not figured out, you know, and I think um, thinking of things in a binary and saying logging was bad and is bad, and it's very sad that this happened, but it had to, I think that's a really damaging point of view. Um, and part of what I dug into with this book was the history of um, the conservation movement in the Pacific Northwest and how it did and, and really notably didn't include any sort of working class perspective uh, or experience and, and how that has led us to where we are today. And, you know, I think that there's, there's a pretty serious gaping hole in the activism world in terms of how we talk about work. And, um, you know, I think there's room for improvement there and room for, for kind of, better communication essentially with people that that work in these worlds we are speaking with lindsay Burgon. she is author of tree thieves crime and survival in north america's woods you can find out more about lindsay lindsay as well as uh, more about her book by going to her website lindsayburgon.com we have a direct link to it at our website uh, so you can find it there as well. You mentioned the bureaucracy around this. The U.S. Forest Service is nestled within mm -hmm. the Department of Agriculture. As such, the trees on Forest Service land are managed like a crop, a product that is grown and harvested and consumed. Other American agencies, National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, fall under the Department of the Interior. But even beneath that umbrella, things get complicated. For instance, selective logging does take place on National Park and BLM lands. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service protects fish, wildlife, and their habitats, uh, trees meant to be protected through their entire life cycle and uh, beyond brought down, a stark example of the ways in which conservation can fail. So how much does the bureaucracy contribute to poaching? Does that bureaucratic makeup lead to a lack of coordination and allowing for poachers to slip through the uh, gaps? Or and, and can that kind of bureaucracy, is it reformable? In terms of investigating poaching and, and if the bureaucracy allows poaching to kind of happen because there are gaps, you know, I think I'm not entirely sure that that's that that's where the bureaucracy uh, poses a challenge. Um, I think that in general, these are these tend to be complicated cases. And sometimes, you know, a park ranger might find that he has to work with a fish and wildlife ranger to investigate who may have taken, you know, for, for instance, a tree growing near a river um, that is going to affect a, a riparian zone. I think that the bureaucracy has actually had an effect on the motivation for poaching. Um, and, you know, I, I, I discuss this a lot in the book. There is a, a, quite a widespread distrust and dislike of federal and state agencies in a lot of these communities where poaching takes place. And the confusing, the confusing kind of layers um, that, that constitute these federal organizations can really frustrate local economies, or sorry, local communities, and local economies, actually. And um, it can 
really motivate groups of people to want to poach, you know, because they they're very angry often at the way that parks are run, uh, the way that uh, management decisions inside the park either do or do not include them. Um, you know, I think there's a really good example of this in the Redwoods where, you know, the park came in and the community of Oric, which I, which I really do a lot of reporting in for the book, they, they were unhappy about the park, you know, being, being kind of formally introduced and, and put in in the late 1960s because, you know, it, it shifted that land from a state park and a forest service land into a national park, which meant that there was no logging that could take place there anymore. And as, as the years have gone on and we've learned that actually completely untouched wildernesses are not ideal for conservation, there actually is logging now taking place in Redwood National Park. And the community is kind of rightfully pretty upset about this because, you know, what I kept hearing was we were told that logging was bad, was bad, was bad. And now there's logging happening in the park and I didn't get that job, you know. Um, so I think that that's where the bureaucracy can become actually quite a, quite a challenge and, and contribute to the poaching world. And as you point out in your book, that there's a lot more federal land uh, west of the Mississippi than east of the Mississippi. And you were yeah. just touching on this, but I'm just curious, how much do you think the purchase of uh, so much federal land on west of the Mississippi, how much do you think that does fuel anti-government sentiment in places like the Pacific Northwest? And I'm sure that you mm. see the same thing in British Columbia. Do those federal land purchases lead to a more general anti-government sentiment? Yes, for sure. And I think it may not always be just the amount that the federal government owns, but also the way that it's managed and like the type of people that the government employs there. Um, I think, you know, one of the poachers who I who I spoke with quite a bit, he kept kind of saying to me, like, if I get pulled over by a by a ranger in a national park, I don't know that person. Like they're not my neighbor. They don't know how to talk to me. Redwoods is is actually, you know, it's an amazingly beautiful place. And because of that, um, it's it's something that park rangers across the country aspire to work there. And so there's a lot of um cycling in and out. Uh, and so, you know, that also doesn't sit right with a lot of communities. I think smaller rural communities are very much used to um kind of continuity and a lot of people sticking around for a long time they value that they you know um that is that is valued more than perhaps what you and I might see as the benefit of travel and and meeting all sorts of different people you know on the flip side on the streets in Oric, for instance, there's real value in saying like, I knew who your grandpa was and I knew who your brother was and I can trust you. And when you don't see the, the management system of this kind of most important visible reminder of the federal government that you see every day following that, you know, it really breeds a sense of like us versus them because they don't, they're not like us, you know? Yeah, it, that, that that was going to be my next question, actually, because you mm -hmm. write, I wonder how someone who lives surrounded by the crushing beauty of a redwood forest can simultaneously love it and kill it, can see mm -hmm. themselves as so entwined with the natural world that destroying part of it comes to feel like another stage in its life cycle. Timber poaching is a large physical crash of a crime, and it is rooted in a challenge 
that stretches across North America, the disintegration of community in the face of economic and cultural change. And, you know, we always hear these, the, this kind of stereotype that many have of people who live in Appalachian region, region or live in but the Pacific Northwest, that they are going against their own best self-interest, as mm-hmm. if they don't know what's best for themselves. Does individualism and a dismissal of communitarian or collectivist responses to today's challenges, does that fuel a disconnect with nature and the very idea of national forests or parks. I guess, and and just to clarify, do you mean individualism, like as applied to poaching? Uh, this what this is what's yeah. best for me, and so that's all. The, if everybody just took care of themselves, then everything would work out perfectly. Yeah, I find you know, and I find that interesting because I think poachers see themselves as as part of community and like. And, and that their work, quote unquote work, is contributing to community because, you know, the the, the kind of deep history of poaching is really that, um, you know, that of Robin Hood and images of people taking from the rich and giving back to the poor and that, um, you know, poaching, some of the earliest records that we have of poaching show that it was like gangs of men usually, um, going into um, privately run forest or parkland or, or, you know, kind of like land owned by the monarch in England um, that had, that they had seen as being taken away from them actually for, for kind of capitalistic reasons. um, And that meant that they couldn't hunt for their community, for their family. um, And so that they would, their response to that would be to go in and to, to kill a bunch of deer, not only as a statement toward the rich, but also to, to feed, to feed their community. And this is um, whether, whether it's fair or not, I think the poachers that I speak to see themselves in that tradition. So they're saying, you know, I take care of my mother. Um, I, you know, I take care of my, my, children or my 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 partner i t- you know i take care of my family's property this is the kind of the only property that the whole family owns and in order for me to take care of it i need to have money coming in and the park took away my ability to log and therefore i'm taking from them um and that's i recognize that for a lot of us that probably just sounds uh essentially not true um but that is the that is the the kind of ecosystem that this point of view is is coming up from and so i think that you know some of the poachers might see the rangers as being individualistic or the government as being individualistic and there for the community um and of course the opposite way is is for law enforcement to say well you only care about yourself you're taking down this tree to to kind of either get a quick payout or to fund something less savory and and that you're not thinking about the environment and and the rest of america and the people that come here to visit this so it's it's kind of like two ideas of the communal good clashing right and that's the like really interesting part that you write in your book about how uh, quote people have taken wood for centuries but wood yeah. has also been taken from us cloistered within fences and marked boundaries on maps throughout history removing land from community use often caused a wreckage whether poachers realize it or not, do you believe poaching is a sign of, again, recognized or not, opposition to the idea of private property? Is poaching uh, anti-capitalist or ultra, <laughs> or is it ultra or hyper-capitalist? Yeah, no, I love it because I often, you know, my perspective from my own background is I see this as like, 
you know, the the commons fighting back and, and you know, <laughs> you know, like you were saying, a kind of really anti-capitalist point of view. I actually think a lot of poachers would, would be very upset to hear me being like having a socialist <laughs> point of view, right? Uh, these tend to be quite blue, quite, um, I think blue is the, sorry, quite red. Yeah, red. red, red okay, yes. I'm sorry. You don't I'm have Canadian. to know the colors. That's right. You can be colorblind. I'm Canadian, on that. and actually in Canada, it's flipped. So our conservative party is blue. So anyway, so these are quite red areas. These are, you know, these are areas that are voting, you know, kind of quite right wing and and have right wing points of view. But I think, you know, oh, this really echoes a lot of uh, like communal socialist perspective. <laughs> At the same time, uh, it's like kind of ironic in a way, you know, um, and so. Yeah, uh, that that's how I how I approach it anyway. Um, you know, I think uh, I think some of the poachers would say like, "Listen, I need money to live." Like, this is really also related to my to my way of getting by. But also, they have really deep connections to community in a way that a lot of maybe some of us who live in urban, non connected to the environment, economies, and things like that, we might we might not understand it, but it is kind of deeply communal. So. And you write that in 2020, a team of 100 economists and scientists released a report imploring governments to conserve 30% of the world's land and water by 2030. But there's mm -hmm. it was the uh, fortress model of conservation, devoid of humans. And their uh, mm -hmm. plan implied that tourism would fill the gap of resource extraction. In response, conservation researchers and social scientists around the world volunteered their critiques, quote, this paper reads to us like a proposal for a new model of colonialism, thundered one appraisal. Two, how does this plan reflect a new model of colonialism? It separates human use from the natural world. It sees humans as, in a sense, it actually sets us aside as some sort of unique deity that does, you know, that says, oh, well, we don't actually need that natural environment so we'll leave it to to rewild and to to kind of come back to this perfect quote unquote perfect way of being before humans touched it which there never was you know and that that is a very colonial point of view because there's no understanding of the fact that indigenous communities uh you know the the first peoples of north america always used wood and had a respect for trees and that that respect came from actually not just looking at it and appreciating it and seeing how it related to the natural world, but by understanding that I need something from it and it gives to me. Um, and that's a relationship, like a like a give and take at the same time, you know, and and colonial perspective is really just that we take. <laughs> um, and so to to what follows down from that is this idea of that if we take, we should also just conversely leave it be and that that is better. Um, and it doesn't take into account any sort of idea that, you know, humans might actually interact with and need the natural world for, for economic and spiritual and cultural in purposes. Um, and it also, you know, when we're talking about 30 for 30, 30 by 30, rather, uh, it takes away a lot of the land that's going to be uh, essentially cordoned off and taken taken away from human use is land that is used by indigenous groups today to um, survive. This isn't land that, you know, corporations are actively 
uh, harvesting from, for instance. And so it just, it follows the, the kind of old way that we instated our national parks of just clearing humans as if they had no relationship to the environment and, and saying it's bad for us to be there and setting up a little mythical or real fence and saying, We're, we leave this be now. You know, it's just not, it's not, we know more about the natural world to, to be following in those steps again. So you mentioned the alternative of community forests and how they might even be able to create more jobs for the local community, which is the important, which is very important. So Mm -hmm. what are uh, community forests and are community forests as interested in, you know, uh, is is that a better process for in order to help out the community as well as the environment? Does that take care of both elements that we want to cater to? I think they're they're one option too. No, there's no... um... We're still relatively early, I suppose, in the days of these being kind of like structured organizations, at least where I live in British Columbia. What I find very promising about them is that they just they're taking a a, a different view of conservation. Um, and it's a view that is really adaptable to each place that they're located, which I think is really important. Often national parks and the national forests they you know like they're they report back to a central agency that's in Washington DC you know um but community forests they they report to the community themselves and so i have a community forest that's actually right right outside my house and the way that this works was that it used to be logging land that the province would lease out to independent logging companies and some of the pro- profits and the tax profit, the taxation and everything would end up back in the province. And so they, they, they were the, the community forest purchased this parcel of land from the government and they manage it not only um, as logging land, but as recreation land, as scientific uh, research property. Um, you know, they manage the riparian zones that, that, kind of flow through the through the forest and there are select areas where they are logged and and in order to do the logging they hire local people that were laid off when the logging industry here kind of went went bust um and it it it's not perfect no i i i'm not sure that there is any perfect way to be honest but it's really something I, I really appreciate how they approach every decision on that land is really multifaceted. Um, and they, when it comes time that someone says, listen, there's a, there's a dead standing tree that is in the way of, for instance, a trail development, or there's a, there's a parcel of trees that, that we, that we need to log because there's been an infestation of a pine beetle, for instance, they, they really work the local network and they find people in the town that need the work, that love doing the work. And I think that that's really important is to to respect the fact that a lot of people see logging as as good, fulfilling work and they want to do it. And they and they pay them and they send them out. And, you know, they're not um, they're not on these kind of quick contracts that a corporation might that a corporation might kind of bring you in for. They you know, they're given kind of smaller projects that they contribute to the community in that way. Um, There's also, there's a community forest that's not far from me and 
they actually really struggled with poaching, um, particularly over the, the pandemic. They had hundreds of instances of poached Douglas fir. Um, and so they, you know, their management board, their community board sat down and they said, how are we going to solve this problem? And most of them are local. So they felt like they knew who the poachers were, which is a really big kind of jump on its own. And they approached the poachers independently and casually in the town. And they said, listen, we think that you might be poaching. We actually have some trees that need to legally come down. Can we hire you to do that instead? If you need money, can you come tell us so that we can just hire you to cut down the tree and hire you to do, you know, to participate in the community firewood program? Um, and that way, you know, like it's the line between legal and illegal is so thin, you know, like they, they basically said, then you won't be poaching anymore. <laughs> you will be doing the same activity, but legally. And I think that that's just really promising. And that that comes from a, a place of being local and comfortable with your community and having empathy for for the people that you live with. Lindsay, one last question for you. We have been speaking with Lindsay Bergon, who is author of Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter at L. Bergon and find out more about Lindsay at her website, lindsayborgon.com. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write public lands enclose some of the oldest remaining trees in the world. Their ability to store large amounts of carbon, the redwoods alone, hold more carbon per acre than any other forest in the world. In British Columbia's Carmana Walburn Provincial Park contains twice the biomass of lush southern hemisphere tropical forests that are widely considered the Earth's lungs, make old growth trees a key species in our fight against climate change. Yet here in the States, and I'm betting it's the same thing up in Canada, there are fairly regular reports on the devastation done to the Amazonian region of South America. But when it comes to poaching of North American forests, whether it's uh, legal or illegal uh, timbering, uh, there isn't as much reporting to you. What explains the focus on the Amazon by those in the U.S. and the lack of reporting on national forests here being victimized by poaching? I think it's an easier narrative that you can get very shocking photos of like five football stadium sized <laughs> plots of trees being taken down in the Amazon. Uh, and it looks devastating because it is devastating. I think that it's much easier to, to look at that and say, oh, how horrible and change the channel than perhaps saying, oh, well, it's just one tree from a park in Washington and it's done by a meth head anyway. And just, it doesn't require you to kind of examine any of your, any of your systems in a way, because it's a foreign place, you know, and you can just say, well, that's, that's really bad. Um, and in North America, you often have to look at it and say, that's horrible. And, and I know someone who might do that. Lindsay, I cannot thank you enough for rescheduling to be back on the show today. Mm -hmm. I truly appreciate it. Thanks again for contributing a copy of your book. Again, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, an autographed copy for our raffle back in September. Thank you so much and enjoy the fall. 
Thank you and happy birthday to you both. Thank you. And listen, uh, when you do have something new coming out, any kind of writing, article, book, anything, please get in contact with us and tell us because I would love to have another conversation with you. Thanks so much. I will. All right. Take care, Lindsay. Ciao. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Lindsay Bergan on the poaching of ancient redwoods made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. When you do become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word, giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at this is hell.com. When you do click on support, but you get you also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. On this week's Patreon podcast, again, it's my birthday. And as this birthday is one of those that's allegedly, supposedly important, despite all birthdays not having any real importance whatsoever, I offered a thoroughly unauthorized autobiography of who else? Or me, that's about it. How can an autobiography be unauthorized? And what so-called important birthday am I celebrating right now? The only way you can find that out is by showing your support again for completely listener-supported. This is hell. Subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast. But what I can tell you is there are references in last week's Patreon monologue to the following: the Houston Astrodome, Gunter Grass's The Tin Drum. Henry Miller's Death of a Salesman, Chrysler's Lee Iacocca, and a wretched self-help book called Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow. Oh, and yes, there is sex. In fact, it's my parents having sex, and that's where it all started. Also on Patreon, we featured an interview from 15 years ago in 2007 when we spoke with then Harper's Magazine contributing editor, Mackenzie Funk, who at the time was speaking to us live from the Icebreaker Healy, somewhere off the coast of Alaska. Mackenzie had the cover story in that month's Harper's. Cold Rush, the coming fight for the melting north, long before anyone had the completely misguided and uninformed idea of purchasing Greenland from Denmark and all of its natural resources, Mackenzie was considering what global warming would mean for resource extraction and its impact when it comes to climate change, as well as geopolitics more generally. That interview with Mackenzie was also the most expensive we have ever done here on This Is Hell. One single interview, which cost us 150 bucks, because back then there was still something called a long-distance phone bill, which we paid out of pocket without the kind support we are now getting from our amazing Patreon patrons. When you do subscribe to This Is Hell, as I was saying, you get, uh, you know, 200 uh, past podcasts of Patreon podcasts as well. It's not just this week's. But you can only hear a brief history of mine and discover exactly how old I am and a prescient observation on our heating and melting world by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Uh, Let's see. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? Uh, Dan K. Wait a minute. Let me just reorder these. Oh, they 
to newest and newest worst. SLS replies, who the hell am I to tell someone else what to do? And then he also says, Happy birthday, Chuck. Dan K writes, drink. Fabio AJL writes, quit drinking. Paolo S. writes, keep hydrated, moisturize, and stay away from the heat while still smashing capitalism. All right. Uh, Letty O. writes, put his lips together and blow. <laughs> wow. uh, bef- um, Tom G. writes, befriend the demon on his butt, to which I say which one. There's, I'm pretty sure there's several. There's several. Um, Anthony M. writes, cannabis for the win. <laughs> And uh, lastly, Wojciech R says, start playing on one of Carrie's pool teams. Oof, I don't want to be beaten. That, you know, I've never played on that pool table downstairs because really? I'm so afraid that I'll get trounced. I haven't played pool in 20 years, and I don't want to do it for the first time in front of a whole bunch of people who are yeah. laughing their ass off at me. And, and also, like, the people at Carrie's are pretty good at what they're doing. Really good at what they're doing. <laughs> it's very frightening. Uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. And now it's time for another mind-blowing edition of producer and historian Sebastian Vopers. Look into the historical context of today's most pressing issues. The past inside the present. The past inside the present. Okay, so today, uh, with a week's delay, is the second uh, installment of The Past Inside the Present, where I talk a little bit about immigration, and uh, immigration to the United States, uh, that is. Um, and since that is quite the large, ever-expanding, never-contracting topic, uh, yes, I'm not talking, I can't talk about everything here, so I'm just uh, picking a few things and talk about those, and probably just scratch the surface on some others and not talk about a bunch of other important things at all. But anyway, um, in 1924, immigration quotas became a thing for the first time, sharply curtailing immigration to the United States from all places that weren't basically white Western Europe. Uh, and the Nazis, by the way, took immigration, these immigration acts of the early 20th century as role models, along with a whole number of American race laws for their own legal anti-Semitism and legal basis to exterminate disabled people, just as a side note. Um, but in the American Southwest, these, these things kind of hit different, because Mexicans still came into the U.S., um, but now they were suddenly illegal. And this category of illegal aliens had not existed before, um, and the borderline between the U.S. and Mexico used to be a zone where people went back and forth as a way of life without being much of a legal issue, um, without that, that, you know, border crossing being, you know, much of a legal issue, or something that anybody really cared about. The border was very soft. Um, and still, somehow, we had a country. Uh, yeah, funny how that works. Um, but still, there were immigration officials on both the Canadian and the Mexican border who were on the lookout for Chinese immigrants who illegally would be crossing because, well, the Chinese had been barred from entering the U.S. by the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. Um, but then, after 1924, Mexicans in the Southwest were increasingly seen, um, well, were increasingly seen as an alien element, even though they were basically a regular part of Southwestern life. 
um, who would come, Mexicans would come and come and go, would work in the U.S. whenever there was need for them. And But now, in the 1920s and onward, border commuters from Mexico were subject to an increasing catalog of dehumanizing practices, such as being forced to taking a bath, well, which basically just means being hosed down once a week for fear of the border crossers bringing lice, which never had been an issue before, but all of a sudden it was. Um, and then the U.S. Border Patrol was also formed in 1924 with its mission to prevent illegal entry into the United States. Um, Congress authorized Border Patrol officers to arrest aliens without warrant in 1925. And uh, then in 1929, illegal entry to the country was first made a criminal offense. And uh, the legality of crossing the border was uh, like that, illegally, was tied to laws and language that was um, that previously had been used to describe and fight bootleggers. And illegal aliens, it was said, brought illegal alcohol across the border. Um, sounds familiar? Yeah, the more things change, the more things stay the, stay the same in history. As I said, does not repeat, but it, it does rhyme. And illegal, and like, and the history of immigration rhymes worse than, or better, rather, than other aspects. Illegal aliens were now, as of 1929, a new category of people, an invisible enemy in the midst of the true American people. Legally, illegal aliens were in an impossible situation because their status as being illegal now meant that they essentially lacked all constitutional rights. And when they were deported, they were basically guilty of criminal offenses that meant they were barred for life from re-entering the country legally. In 1930, during a congressional hearing, the Commissioner General of Immigration, Henry Hull, stated that the Border Patrol's mission was to find, detain, and deport aliens wherever they encountered them in the United States, not just at the border. Illegal entry was at the time was defined as uh, something that did not end with the successful, cross successful crossing of the border, but that it was continuing offense until the alien had reached his interior destination. What that meant was left vague and allowed the Border Patrol a lot of interpretation. Um, but then mass deportations did not happen right away because the novelty of the situation just was too great. Illegal aliens were too difficult to distinguish from regular Americans. And while the rhetoric at the time whipped illegals up to be criminal monstrosities, many undocumented immigrants were essentially just kind of law-abiding non-citizens who just due to some faulty paperwork and often without either their own knowledge or fault had become illegal. And the situation was not that much different back then from how it is today, really. The Border Patrol, then as now, operated like an armed gang of power-drunk racist bullies from its inception, basically. The border agents were recruited from dubious backgrounds, and many early Border Patrol agents had KKK affiliations. It was the 1920s, after all. But especially the agricultural industry of California remained heavily reliant on migrant workers. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so a lot, of, uh, a lot of people just kept on crossing the border, whether, like, regardless of whether or not that was legal, and uh, kept on going to work in... Uh, 
in uh, uh, the the agricultural business in the American Southwest. And then in 1942, as the United States entered World War II, those California businesses needed more labor to keep operating um, because most American men had been drafted into the war. And that then resulted in the Migrant Labor Agreement that uh, commonly was referred to as the Bracero Program, a joint operation between the uh, State Department and the Department of Labor that would allow initially 300,000 Mexican migrant workers to enter the country as guest workers. But the number of legal braceros turned out um, being much too low for the agricultural industry. So um, agribusses along with, in the entire Southwest kept relying heavily on illegal workers still. And this shift in legality of the border-crossing workforce happened at the same time that agriculture in the Southwest became consolidated into large agribusinesses. And these businesses had a vested interest in maintaining a labor force that was illegal and migratory. Because such labor such labor force will not organize, will not work, uh, will work for very small wages, and could always be threatened with deportation, um, something that you could not do with, you know, American workers. And this imported labor force uh, largely replaced the domestic agricultural workforce in the Southwest and heavily depressed wages in the agricultural sector. The Bracero program also directly fueled outright Im uh, illegal immigration as the Mexican state refused to send citizens to the U.S. states of Texas, Arkansas, and Missouri because those states all had violated the conditions of the Bracero program that they would not discriminate against migrant workers on racial grounds. Um, and since the growers, planters, and ranch owners of these states could could not hire illegal braceros, well, they instead kept on relying on a, a, or even heavier, relying even heavier on uh, illegal workers from Mexico. In 1954, then, uh, the new head of Immigration and uh, Naturalization Services, the INS, a gentleman by the name of Joseph S. General Joseph S. Swing, a general was not his name, he uh, used to be actually a general in World War II, went to West Point with uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, so General Swing, nice fellow, initiated a program that was supposed to force those who would not hire legal braceros um, in favor of illegals to rethink their stance by forcefully and violently rounding up and deporting masses of undocumented workers. And this undertaking was deliberately giving the racist label Operation Wetback. In two years, almost a million undocumented uh, were detained and deported, but not all of those were actually illegals. Quite a few of those forcefully returned to Mexico and just dumped there, um, leading to all kinds of real bad humanitarian issues in Mexico, were actually American citizens. But that's a small price of freedom to pay, I guess. Um, but that American citizens got swept up in racist legal actions was at this point not really a novelty. After all, uh, thousands of Japanese Americans had been stripped of their rights and property um, during World War II. Uh, and, you know, detained in concentration camps and all that stuff. And uh, while immigration policy allowed for Mexican migrant workers, um, the situation for immigrants from Asia was altogether different. Asians had much legal difficulties of becoming naturalized citizens or even just um, immigrating to the U.S., mostly thanks to the Chinese Exclusion Act from the 19th century, as I said before. And then in 1924, hard immigration quotas were set that strictly limited immigration from countries that were not majority white in 
the um, like according to the majority to what was white uh, in in the early 1900s, and uh, this again changed then in 1965 with the Hart Seller Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, which then abolished the quota system after a three-year transition period. Um, and this new law then replaced national quotas and limitations with uh, broader ones, one for the Western Hemisphere and one for the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, and this was the first time, by the way, that um, immigration was uh, curtailed uh, from other, like that immigration from other American countries into the United States was curtailed legally. And uh, surprise, surprise, one of the results was an increase in illegal immigration from Mexico, since American agriculture still did and still does rely heavily on Mexican migrant workers and um, also still relies heavily on illegal uh, slash undocumented Mexican migrant workers. Kind of funny how that works. Um, also, by the way, the agricultural sector is um, is still a sector in which child labor is kind of legal and still practiced. So, uh, yeah, America, the America is really kind of a first world country only for some people and a third world country for kind of a lot of others. Anyway, another result of Hart's, the Hart Seller Act of 65 was the beginning of changing immigrant demographics because now people from Asia could for the first time immigrate to the United States with much fewer legal hurdles than before. And one of the results is uh, the neighborhood that our studio is located in because most of South Asian immigrants came to the U.S. in the wake of Hart Seller. But of course, as we all know, this did not make life for immigrants in this country much easier. Most non-white non people faced and still face massive discrimination. And, uh, well, I think this is going to be a three-parter. So next week I'll look at a few choice ways that immigration law functions and how decisions made a long time ago still color how immigration works. Uh, this has been a look at the past inside the present. Uh, join us again next week for more past inside the present. So uh, Sebastian is going to be telling us who's going to be coming up on this week's show in just a moment. But finally, we got, we got a couple of emails wishing me a happy birthday. First, from past guest Paolo Cerbello, who spoke with us back in January about protests in Kazakhstan. Paolo writes... Dear Chuck, over the weekend I listened to the Patreon podcast and couldn't believe it when you talked about your age. I thought you were a decade younger. Anyway, I wish you a good one and many more good ones in the future. Every day is someone's birthday and every day this is hell. Yes, even in a few days when it will be legal to wish Sebastian a happy birthday as well. All the best from Kazakhstan. Yours, Paolo, and Gregory K. writes, Happy birthday, Chuck, for my birthday present to you. I raised my Patreon pledge to half of your age. Love, Gregory. And again, the only way you can find out how old I am is by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com. He, he, he raised his Patreon to $5? I know. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Or was it 10 and a half? I'm not too sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, that'd make a great birthday gift for me, for Sebastian, for everybody who works on the show, more Patreon patrons. Sebastian, who is coming up on this week's show? Uh, coming up on This Is Hell, returning to the show will be writer, theorist, and recovering academic Sophie Lewis, who will be on to discuss her new book on the date will be published, and that uh, is tomorrow. And that book is titled Abolish the Family, Ma Manifesto for Care and Liberation. 
you, re you may remember Sophie being on the show back in July 2019 uh, to talk about her book, Full Sur Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. And, that, and this book is as amazing as her last book, which was selected by our listeners as one of their favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. It is going to blow your mind as it is blowing mine. I'm telling you, I'll read a page. It'll take me like 35 minutes to read one page because every freaking sentence blows my mind. And who will be this week's final guest? And the final guest of the week on Wednesday will be Legal Advocacy Director with Project South and a past president of the National Lawyers Guild, Azadeh Shashahani and Fatima Ahmad, Executive Director of uh, the Muslim Justice League, talking about their article at The Progressive. The surveillance state can't solve white supremacy after the January 6th attack. Federal surveillance programs expanded to counter white supremacist violence have made black and brown communities their main target. <laughs> I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vopper for producing and another exceptional edition of The Past Inside the Present. Thank you, Sebastian. This is not the media. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>